The following is a sermon podcast from White Ridge Baptist Church. Amen. Thanks, Kevin. <clears throat> Just wanted to um, begin by mentioning tonight's event. Uh, it's called Come to the Core. And um, we're going to be meeting in this room right after this service, actually. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, the chair team is going to be uh, leaving chairs up the front for the Korean church and setting up tables and chairs just like our Come to the Table event. And uh, this evening we're coming together and about 80, I think, have signed up. And you're welcome to be a late walk-in if you want. And we're going to be divided up into different ministries of our church. And this is a corporate equipping event as we focus on the, the theme of humility and servanthood. So if you feel like you'd like to be out tonight, uh, you're welcome to join us. <clears throat> we've been involved in a series in Genesis, and uh, we've just uh, today are finishing a mini-series in the series. The mini-series has been all about the image of God. We've been studying what the image of God is all about in humans, and we've been looking at the fact that last week we talked about ourselves as relational beings. We have the capacity to love and be loved, just as God the Father exists in a relationship of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and is a loving God with himself and with us, so also we were created in his image to be lovers, to be people who, who love and are loved, a capacity for intimacy. And that's who God created us to be. Um, we talked about that last week, and and uh, that's why in the scriptures, the very first thing that God said is not good is loneliness, because we were actually created for relationship. Talked last week as well about the fact that the, though the, the great, beautiful pattern that God has set out is able to meet all of our needs, that something happened, that, that it was broken, and that uh, we all are broken people, and broken people cannot help but break relationships. And so we engage in broken relationship. We all have our blind spots. We, we, we need the Holy Spirit to show because we don't know what we don't know about ourselves unless the Holy Spirit shows us and unless we have the kind of humility to become self-aware in a way that we're not naturally self-aware, being courageous enough to face the fear of looking into that which is in us that others might see, but we don't see. Relational being, such an important part of our sanctification. That's why the analogy, I love the analogy of the iceberg, because one-tenth of the iceberg is on top of the ocean, nine-tenths are beneath. The one-tenth on top represents the amount of sin about you that you realize. And the nine-tenths below the surface of your consciousness, some of which others see and you don't, all of which God sees and loves you in spite of it, sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die in your place on the cross so that you could be clean from sin. That's what the message of Christ brings us. <clears throat> and so, incredible opportunity for us to take steps into relationship, which is really meaning to take a step into, into Christ and into sanctification. And then when we do that, an incredible peace comes over us, an ability to actually love those who have hurt us, to forgive those who have offended us, to, as, as the Lord prayed, taught us to pray, to forgive those who trash in our baskets, right? Forgive us our trash baskets as we forgive those who trash in our baskets. That's, that's the Lord's prayer, according to the five-year-old. So turn in your Bibles now to Genesis chapter 2. 
And let's take a look at a very important scripture this morning. Genesis chapter 2, beginning in verse 18 and going to verse 25. If you're able to stand with me now, would you do that and listen to the word of God? Genesis chapter 2, 18 to 25. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. And out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man he made into a woman and brought her to the man. And then the man said, This at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Would you let me pray with us before you sit down? Father God, now as uh, I have this privilege, Lord God, of expounding upon the incredible and beautiful design that you have given humanity, O oh God, in the marriage relationship, I pray that you would bless us as we talk about it. And also that you might send your Holy Spirit, O God, to enable us to enter into the hard places where your design has been corrupted. And we will be able, Lord, to, by your redeeming grace, see that you can retrieve and redeem and restore that which was stolen. We pray grace upon us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. If you were to go to our church's webpage and look at the statement of beliefs, you would find there are two statements that define our view of marriage and family. We believe the Bible teaches that marriage refers to the covenant relationship between one man and one woman as instituted by God in the beginning to the exclusion of all others. And our definition of family, we, we affirm the family as the basic unit of society and seek to preserve its integrity and its stability. Why is that included in our statement of beliefs? Well, it's included because we live in a time when we believe that the institution of marriage and family are very much under attack and actually are trying to be redefined by many people. And so as a community of faith, we want to build our lives on God's Word. That's why we have called this Genesis series Foundations of the Faith. And the passage that we've just read is, is so very loaded with themes and ideas that um, I would love to go into. I want to tell you at the outset that today I am going to be more of a pastor in the pulpit than I am going to be a, an expositor in the pulpit. And you'll probably see why as we unpack. So what it means is that this morning, though it's very interesting, and if you want to come on February 12th to the Life Pass Seminar, we might get into some of these things. Though it's very interesting, what does it mean a helper suitable for Adam? Or what does it mean that he took the rib and then closed up its, its, its place? And There's lots of things in this text that we would love to explore that we won't this morning. 
because we're going to kind of have an overview. We're going to be at about 30,000 feet this morning looking down at this text and really grappling with some of the most current things that I believe are, are right in this room where we're wrestling. And pastorally, in this scripture, I have to talk pastorally to you about this. And so this morning, we have four points that we're going to run through. The genius of God's design, the glue of it, the genocide of it, and then finally, the goal of God's design. And so, what is the genius of God's design for marriage? Why, why is it that, that really, if we were to understand it, we would just take our shoes off and go into worship because of the design of God in marriage? Well, I believe that I'd like to share eight reasons why it's incredible. They're in your insert in your bulletin, or the, the first word is anyway. You can do the rest of the work. And, and it describes what, what needs in humanity the relationship of marriage meets when followed by God, or God, we follow God's plan. And so let's take a look. The, the relationship of marriage would reflect God's image as well as God's covenant love for his people. The New Testament unpacks this way more. Paul talks about the marriage relationship, Christ being the head and, and the, the, the groom, I should say, and, and uh, the church being the bride. The marriage relationship would solve the problem of Adam's loneliness. The marriage relationship would create a, a relationship of the deepest earthly intimacy, the goal being oneness. That's what a goal, the goal of marriage is, oneness. And the marriage relationship creates that physical oneness, emotional, spiritual oneness. The marriage relationship would provide for stable procreation in the security of a loving relationship. God's way is designed that when a child is born, there is this stable environment of mother and father nurturing that child. The relationship would also model maleness and femaleness to boys and girls. The, the model of biblical masculinity would be incarnate in the father. The model of biblical femininity would be incarnate in the woman, the mother. And together, children would grow up with that healthy look at what both sides should be. Continuing on, this relationship of designed by God would also offer the ideal conditions for discipleship, the passing on of personal faith. There is no better place or nucleus than the family to nurture faith. That's why our ministry to children says in its philosophical nature, we come alongside families and parents to do their job in discipling their children. This relationship is designed to do that. The marriage relationship, as God designed it also, would form a wider net of support to the family unit with grandparents and uncles and aunts and cousins all surrounding this family when a time of need comes. The human community, the family unit, the marriage at the center of it is the very design of God. And then finally, beyond the fall, beyond when sin and death would enter and disease and all kinds of things would enter, this marriage relationship designed by God, would comfort the suffering and the elderly with a loving family to give dignity at the end of earthly life. Do you see the genius of God's design for marriage? It's incredible. This is the way God designed it. And there might be more that we could add, 
But uh, let's move on to talk about the glue of God's design for marriage. I don't think you could find a better text in all of the Bible to define what Christian marriage should look like as verses 24 and 25. In verses 24 and 25, we th- see three principal features to marriage. There's leave and cleave, there's becoming one flesh, and there's nakedness and unashamedness in it. Let's talk about those three quickly. There's a precedent-settingness to the marriage relationship that puts all parents, like I'm at the stage of being, into a very vulnerable position. And those of you who have married children know exactly what I'm talking about. Because you see, you don't get to choose the spouse that your son or daughter chooses. And even if you lived in a, in a culture where, where it was arranged marriages, after they got married, you don't get to choose how they are going to treat you as grandparents. There's a, a vulnerability. because Why? Because there's a leaving and there's a cleaving. Very strong Hebrew verbs. And when the leaving takes place and the cleaving takes place, a new family is formed that is going to now answer directly to God, not through mom and dad. And that answering directly to God is exactly the way God designed human society to live. Now, it does not mean that they're not meant to obey the fifth commandment, that it may go well with you, honor your father and your mother. That doesn't stop. That doesn't change. But the new family takes precedence. Now, I I could tell you tons of pastoral stories of where I or Pat and I together have witnessed meddling mothers or fathers into their children's marriages and doing more harm than good. We won't go there. But I am saying that this is a key part of Christian marriage. Secondly, it says that we are there became one flesh. And this physiological and anatomical union is what sexual intercourse is all about. It's it's coming together and enjoying that gift of sex in a marriage relationship where it's safe and secure and lasting and long and loving, not lusting. And in that one flesh union, really we see a picture of the very whole intent of the marriage union. The oneness physically that is enjoyed in sex is really about oneness emotionally, socially, psychologically, relationally, spiritually, mentally. Spiritually joined to God, mentally having common beliefs and values, emotionally going to a depth of intimacy where trust takes you to the deeper places that many other relationships could not take you. Socially having common friendships, moving in and out of relationships intentionally for the kingdom of God because you're together on the same page. Physically having sexual pleasure, making love, not lust. Marriage sex is the one place that this pleasure can be enjoyed righteously. And husbands and wives... You need to know how to to meet your spouse's needs in that area. And then finally, it says naked and unashamed, a husband and wife having this covenantal relationship of trust that lends to intimacy. Marriages are designed by God to be the kind of honest, vulnerable intimacy place where we can know and be known as much as is possible by two sinners on this earth. 
and yet not be ashamed. There is a purity to this chapter 2, 24, 25. There is a purity to this unashamedness. It is not the shamelessness of sinners who cast off restraint, whose consciences have been seared, and who live in rebellion against God. It is a very different kind of unashamedness. And even when sin enters the relationship and purity is compromised in a relationship, the incredible forgiving, reconciling, and restoring grace that can accompany a marriage because of Jesus Christ enables them to go back to that beauty and potential of intimacy. So, leave and cleave, become one flesh, naked and unashamed. But as we all know, no one, not even Adam and Eve, who lived in paradise, not in Winnipeg, <laughs> not even Adam and Eve had a perfect marriage. And not even Adam and Eve lived happily ever after. For we have all fallen short of the plan of God. The design of God has been corrupted, and we're going to see next week in chapter 3 as we enter it why and how. But today I want to clarify three very grave concerns that I believe influence the house of God. And that's why pastorally I want to address them. In fact, I, I don't want to just say that, that the design of God has been corrupted or, or so on. I, I want to use a very strong word, and I want to defend that word, and it's the word genocide. There's a genocide of God's design for marriage. I know it's a strong word. I do not want to minimize in any way the atrocities that have occurred in human history. If you've not been to the Museum of Human Rights here in Winnipeg, you need to go. And you need to visit some of the exhibits that talk about what has gone on. I use the term genocide in the context today that I'm talking about because I believe that the scriptures teach and our experience reveals that Satan and the world system and sin itself has taken aim at marriage and family and is seeking to undo what God has done. Genocide is defined as the deliberate killing of a large group of people, especially those of a particular ethnic group or nation. Well, we see... We see these forces lining up against the family and against marriage as God has designed it. Jesus himself said in John 10.10, 10, the, the thief, Satan he, he was talking about, has come only to rob and kill and destroy. I have come that you might have life and have it abundantly. And all of us know that we're not living in the abundance of Jesus like we'd like to. Because if we go back through the list that we made earlier, we know that we're broken image bearers and we don't reflect God's covenant love. We know that we are often lonely and isolated because of fear and insecurity and hurt. We know that true intimacy is not experienced in marriages often that end in divorce. We know that children are not always born into the security of a loving family relationship with mom and dad. We know that girls and boys often do not grow up with good role models of masculinity and femininity. We know that homes are often not places of discipleship, where parents themselves are struggling with whether they believe in God or not. We know that families are often fragmented and unable to give that, that family with young children the support that they could have by the broader family, and we know that the suffering and the elderly, whether it's through mental or physical illness, 
are often not able to be cared for by family like everybody would like to and are sometimes even abandoned. We know that there's a corruption and, and that Satan has come against marriage and family and the brokenness of sin in its myriad and many ways is undoing what God has done. Sometimes the image is hardly discernible, the image of God. And so this morning, I would like to address three areas, and um, let's look at them now. First of all, let's talk about broken marriages. Henry David Thoreau was right when he said that most people lead lives of quiet desperation. And I'm aware that when I get up to preach any, any given Sunday, that there are people sitting ahead of me who are struggling in difficult marriages and who, or who have faced failed marriages. Those who have experienced divorce often feel judged and isolated and misunderstood. Often their story is not even known before they are judged. My point in mentioning this as one of the three three areas to address this morning is to say that we are all broken people in this church and that none of us have perfect marriages and we want this place to be safe and yet I know that sometimes any church could give the impression that we're more interested in assessing the blame in the relationship than we are in walking us alongside the hurt and understanding their pain in loving them back to health. But we will never join God in what he is doing in that life if we are not prepared to get close enough to really listen. Yes, sometimes repentance is needed, absolutely. Yes, sometimes where possible reconciliation is possible. But my concern is do those who are facing difficult marriages or divorce have the support a loving faith community or a few Christian friends that will walk it out I also want to talk this morning secondly about gender confusion there is such gender confusion in our culture today the social sexual agenda today is really seeking to undo what God has done and what we just studied it is seeking to undo the binary identity of male and femaleness. The distinction that God has created in his image, male and female, he created them. Another word to describe it is monism. Monism is the theory that denies the existence of distinctions. Trying to eliminate distinctions. Did you notice, however, though, that when we were studying Genesis 1 and 2 that over and over again, the writer of Genesis reminded us that everything God created was according to its kind. You see, it's distinctions that God loves. I mean, everything from reptiles according to their kind, animals according to their kind, birds according to their kind, even plants and fruit-bearing trees according to their kind. And when he comes to the zenith of God's creation, humanity in his own image, what does he say? Male and female, he created them. God loves distinction. That's what God loves. And our gender is distinct. The uniqueness of the individual matters. Gender 
defined perhaps could be this. Gender is a God-given paradigm to understand yourself in relationship to God and to those around you. And so ideas such as transgender, ideas such as gender fluidity, do not reflect the design of God for your sexuality. In fact, they are a rebellion against the image of God. They are a rebellion against the image of God. It is a man or a woman pointing their finger at God and saying, I will not identify with how you knit me together in my mother's womb. I will be who I want to be. It is the tasting of a forbidden fruit, and it will have later consequences, just as we read in the Scriptures. We're going to come back to this theme later on in the Scriptures in, in, in Genesis chapter 19 on April the 5th, specifically discussing homosexuality and the five primary Scriptures in the whole Bible that address it so clearly as being contrary to God's design. But I don't want to leave this subject there. Because, again, I'm primarily trying to be pastoral this morning. Simply in naming the brokenness is not my intent this morning. I want to come alongside the broken, not just name the brokenness. My concern is pastoral. If a person among us, if a person, one of us, has an unwanted same-sex attraction, or has a gender confusion of some nature, Will they feel that this is a safe place to experience or to figure out their brokenness and to find healing? If a person, think about it, if a person with cancer were to be in some group in our church, a little prayer huddle, and they were to share, you know, I just was diagnosed with uh, cancer. Would you pray for me? They're going to get loved on. They're going to find support. And if another person comes to another prayer group and they say, you know, I, I have an unwanted same-sex attraction. Would you pray for me? Would they get the same love? Would they get the same support? Would they get the same understanding? See, I want to think about this as these are our own people. This is you and I, folks. They're in the camp. They're part of the, the, the tribe. And if we don't embrace them, if we don't walk with them, they're going to find another community that will open their arms and receive them and give them a different narrative and a different agenda and a different teaching that is contrary to God's design. That's my fear. Is this a safe place? And uh, neither cancer nor same-sex attraction is a sin. Neither cancer nor unwanted same-sex attraction is a personal sin. Please understand me. Believe me that the distinction between sin, big S, and personal sin are very different. Cancer is a result of the fall. Something went wrong in our chromosome makeup. Same-sex attraction, I believe, also is the result of the fall. 
It is not the same-sex attraction that is sin. It is what you do with that same-sex attraction that then makes it either sin or not. I know we're opening up a whole bunch of stuff here that we cannot close, but we must address it pastorally. We must address it as as a community of faith. We all face desires that are not righteous. You may not face a same-sex desire, but you face other desires. It's what you do with that desire that makes it sin. And so, how do we receive one another? How do we minister to one another? Some of you know the the, the work of Dr. Ann Gillies around conversion therapy. I don't know if it was from her or someone else that I read about the danger of presenting heterosexual feelings as the goal and the sign of healing for somebody that is wrestling with same-sex attraction. That is a dangerous place. For, for I, I know personally some in my whole life who have had same-sex attraction that are now heterosexual and I know some that are not and have just learned to live celibate lives. You think about Henry Nouwen and others. What, what healing looks like is a dangerous thing for us to to prescribe. So much so more could be said. Some of you are reading the book by Rosaria Butterfield, The Gospel Comes with a House Key. I commend her testimony to you. A woman who was a lesbian that came out of that because of, a, of the listening ear of a pastor. Let's move on to the final, the third thing that I want to mention as applicable this morning, and that is single and sexual. I like what Jonathan Moss of a ministry called Outpost Ministries says, he says, singleness is a gift from God, not a concession of brokenness. <laughs> oh, wow. That is so true. And, and some of you who are single might say, well, thank you for saying that. Singleness is a gift from God, not a concession of brokenness. There are many single adults that are called by God to remain single and can live content in that calling and have healthy male and female relationships. I love the 1 Timothy 5, 1 and 2. Paul, the elderly, talking to Timothy, the younger, not married, and he's saying to him, what is he saying? He's saying, treat older men like what? Fathers? Let's try it again. Treat older men like and older women like and younger men like You're working with me here? And younger men like? And younger women like sisters. And then he adds, in absolute purity. You see, single people are supposed to have healthy male and female relationships. And I believe that God calls you to that. Yet we live in an over-sexualized culture and society that puts pressure on single adults to explore and experiment and discover and perform sexually. A guy by the name of Mike Starkey in his book called God, Sex, and Generation X writes this. He says, Ours is a culture crying out for intimacy, but only able to conceive of accessing it through sex. Crying out for intimacy, but only thinking that the only way or avenue toward intimacy is sexual. What a, what, a, what a lie. John Burke, in his book called No Perfect People Allowed, writes this. He says, if you're a single adult, the prevailing message you get is that if you are normal and healthy, you will have sex. 
Otherwise, there's something wrong with you. To save your sexuality for the context of a committed, loving, lifelong relationship sounds so archaic and actually downright detrimental. (laughs) So the sexually charged culture does not make it easy for the young person seeking to live a pure life and wait for God's plan to unfold. And yet, over 30 times in our Bible... Sexual immorality, which is sex outside of the marriage covenant, is very clearly warned against and told, we're told this is not God's design. Wait for the special gift of that one person that will share a lasting relationship with you. When I was in Bolivia and doing some research, and I asked individuals to tell me stories that impacted their lives, in my research for my doctorate of ministry, and uh, I remember a young woman, we were at a camp just outside of Cochabamba, and a young woman told me the story of her box of chocolates. She said she heard the story of a, a, box of, a, a girl with a box of chocolates, and she'd, she'd, she'd have a guy come along and said, would you give me a chocolate? And she opened her box and gave a, a boy a box, a, a chocolate. And someone else later on, again, took a chocolate from that box, and then finally came to the point where she wanted to give this gift of box of chocolates to somebody's none left. And she said that she heard that as a young woman, and she interpreted it to mean keep your sexual purity as a young woman because these chocolates were meant, this whole box was meant for that one individual, not to just be given to whoever comes along. I've never, that's never, I've never forgotten that story. Well, Let's move to our last point. And that is the goal of God's design. The man and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. What does intimacy with no shame look like? Let me read to you an extended quote from this book that uh, Steve Morris pointed me to, The Soul of Shame by Kurt Thompson. So what's the point of the last verse of chapter 2, he says? Adam and Eve were both naked and they felt no shame. The writer has my attention. (laughs) He could have chosen from an entire panoply of words or phrases to describe humanity's emotional state at this point. He could have said that the man and the woman were naked and really happy. He could have said they were naked and they were strong and confident together. He could have said that they were naked and without fear or anger or sadness or disappointment or regret. He could have said anything and all of them perhaps would have been true. But then he goes on to say, with so many words to choose from, why was the emphasis on shame? It would seem that it is no accident. I would suggest that the vulnerability of nakedness is the antithesis of shame. I would suggest that the writer wants us to pay attention to shame, not just because it happens to show up later, but because of its central role in all that ends in a curse. He says, shame is the emotional feature out of which all that we can call sin emerges. You see, we all face shame. To different degrees and for different reasons, we all face shame. It destroys what God has created as good in our lives. It kills intimacy. It kills relationship. Shame attaches itself to you like zebra mussels on the bottom of a boat. It clings to you, and after you leave that place, it follows you 
Wherever you go, it follows you. It's on the underbelly of you. It's part of you. You try to wash it off, but it doesn't come off easily. And you start to do image management so that no one sees the underbelly of you, of where you tried to float your boat. And the things that clung to you because of something shameful. Shame kills the image of God wherever it shows up. And Jesus said, I have come that you might have life and have it abundantly. And whatever shame has undone in your life, I want to tell you this morning, Jesus can redo. Amen? Whatever shame has undone in your life, Jesus can redo. That's the message of the gospel. And if we would learn to walk with each other, I believe we would find that. I'm not suggesting a Pollyanna approach to healing. I'm not suggesting that we believe in our church in any way, especially with relational and sexual brokenness. I do not believe in a one, two, three, you'll be set free kind of formula. But I do believe that when we walk together, when we come out of the, the shell and learn to walk in, in relationship with others, we, we, will, we will arrive together somewhere very good. You were not hurt in an isolated way. You were hurt in community, and you'll find healing in community. And that's why we want to pray for you this morning. I'm going to ask my good friend and brother Steve Morris to come up, and he's going to share more on this subject of shame, some of the ministry that uh, the men's group has had in our church, and, um, and then he's going to lead us into a time when maybe some here are meant to receive prayer this morning. Maybe, maybe today's the day when God unlocks something in you. Steve, would you come? God bless you. I know the hour is getting late already, and uh, I hope you'll be um, patient with us this morning. Um, and if you're not, I'm up on the platform, so it just doesn't matter. It's my turn, right? So, um, I love it when God has his way in preparation. Uh, Terry and I did not prepare our talks together, and uh, uh, he stole my thunder here. <laughs> uh, Henry David Thurl. The mass of men leave lives of quiet desperation. He already quoted that. That means that the majority of men and women lead lives of quiet desperation. Sin will take you farther than you want to go and make you pay more than you want to pay. It was 2009 and uh, been married 18 years. And um, it was about three decades of my life that I was uh, hiding in quite a compartment of my life. Uh, living in lies and practicing deception. And living with a desperate emptiness. Even though I was a believer in Jesus Christ. C.S. Lewis wrote that 
that sin offers us an ever-increasing desire for an ever-diminishing pleasure. And bondage to pornography was the place that I had been caught. From small white lies to bold-faced lying, standing right in front of my wife, lying as to what I was spending my time doing, why I was coming home so exhausted from business trips. It had absolute bondage upon my life. And I was so ashamed of who I was and so afraid, <laughs> so afraid of losing everything. And I was living such a, a shallow life. It, it was two-dimensional. That, that thought came to me this week. My life was two-dimensional. It wasn't three-dimensional. And it was just, it was all so consumed with keeping this lie um, hidden. Almost exactly 10 years ago, it's next month, February 17th, 2010, God answered a prayer that I prayed in 2009. Uh, I think I prayed it audibly, but it was, God, would you please change me? No matter the road, no matter the cost, I, I just can't keep going on. I just can't. Would you please change me? And I could only see my habitual sin as the problem, not the undercurrents of shame that I lived with and the trauma that I had experienced. See, sexual sin is not about sex. It's about how we medicate the pain in our lives. I'll say that again. Sexual sin is not about sex, but rather it is a powerful medication for dealing with the troubled undercurrents of our lives. Like Terry had mentioned about the iceberg, that nine-tenths that's under the surface, all I could see was that one-tenth. I couldn't see those nine-tenths at that point. G.K. Chesterton said, every man who knocks on the door of a brothel is searching for God. Also quoting... Um, Dr. Kirk Thompson, all sin, all idolatry, all coping strategies in which I indulge are ways for me to satiate my hunger for relationships, my longing to be known and loved, my desire to be desired. What I didn't see at that point in my life was there was trauma in my life. See, trauma comes in two ways. It comes in big T's and little T's. Big traumas, little traumas. Call it wax, W-A-C-K-S, not W-A-X. Wax, W-A-C-K-S. Those are the big traumas in our life that could be sexual or physical abuse. It could be divorce in the family, death, war. But then what's often not seen is the little T's much more frequent, much less intense, perhaps like distracted parents, absent fathers, neglect. Those are the lacks, L-A-C-K-S. See, all trauma is personal, and all trauma 
is significant. We're wounded by the sins of others, and we're also wounded by our own sin. And the result of my own sin was shame. I was living in conflict with the Judeo-Christian principles I've been raised with. I was living in contradiction to the faith that I held. There was guilt. Guilt is that I did wrong. But there was shame, which was telling me that there was something wrong with me. That I didn't have what it took. And that I was not enough. Shame disintegrates. It decouples. And it breaks apart. And uh, that February 17th, 2010, that day was the breaking point for me. I remember that morning I called a friend of mine <coughs> who conveniently was home. And it took me, I think it took me nearly two hours, two hours just to say pornography that I was struggling with. And that night I went home. And after we put the kids to bed, I sat my wife Barb down on the couch. And I pulled up a chair in front of her. And I began to confess. I began to confess what held me in bondage. And I mean began. Because <laughs> at that point, I could only see so much. But I began that confession. This morning, uh, what I want to do is I just want to share with you two things. Two things that I have learned in my walk over these past 10 years that have been really significant for me in, in transforming uh, my life. And uh, uh, these principles, these, these things that I've learned, I've learned them out of Seven Pillars of Freedom, which is a, a long 35-week program done by Pure Desire. Um, but also, there's pieces of this that come out of the Conquer series as well, which, which we're hosting again starting in two weeks on January 25th. And uh, that Conquer series is called the Battle, Battle Plan for Purity. The first thing that I learned was that this was not just a moral problem or a spiritual problem. It became a brain problem. And that's not understood. You see, sexual sin is unique. Pornography is poison to the brain. And when I began to understand what happens in our brains, and especially in the male brain, even more so than the than female brain, although it does happen in both, it opened for me 1 Corinthians 16 to 18 unbelievably. It says, Do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. See, forgive my candor, but when we are beholding, and especially again for the male brain, as we are beholding somebody, leave it at that, as we're beholding, we are bonding. There is a chemical process in our brains, and we become bonded to that image. There is a, a gluing 
that happens. Now, that's beautiful, absolutely beautiful in God's design in the covenant of marriage. That's what's supposed to happen. You behold each other and become bonded to them. But that's the only place. The other verse there, 1 Corinthians 6, verse 18, says, flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. And that just became so clear when I began to understand from the view of what, what modern science is just confirming what Scripture has said for the last 2,000 years. So the typical evangelical church response to this problem, just stop it. Just stop your behavior. It doesn't work. It doesn't work. So the, there, there's a medical terminology called neuroplasticity. Essentially means that our brains have the ability to recover. The changes that have happened in our brains because of viewing pornography can be undone. But it takes time. It takes time. It's a two to five year process with a miracle every day. And God's solution to that problem is clearly laid out in Romans 12 too. Paul says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed. How? By the renewing of our minds. That's right. It's a process. Second thing I learned was this, is that you cannot... You cannot become free of this bondage on your own. Period. It will not happen. It must be done in the community of God's body. Vulnerability and transparency with others is scary. <laughs> you think it wasn't scary coming up here today? Okay. I was terrified 10 years ago as I sat with one person in the safety of his home and began to confess. Yet, that is exactly what it takes. Again, Kurt Thompson, to be vulnerable is to recognize that we are at the mercy of those whose intentions we cannot guarantee and who can leave us alone. But the solution lies, ironically, in doing the very thing that shame convinces us is the most dangerous, threatening act we could commit. It's vulnerability and transparency. It begins there. I confessed my sin to God every time I fell. Three decades, tens of thousands of times. Promising I'd never do it again. Jesus forgave, but the healing I needed would only come in direct contact with his body. Trustworthy brothers in a safe and confidential setting. James 5.16 says, Confess your sins, therefore, one to another, and pray for one another that you may be healed. And it is to our detriment that we ignore that. Now, you might be wanting to ask me after the service if you're brave and you corner me. Yeah, but geez, uh, Steve, you know, do you still struggle? Actually, that is what I do now. Now, I struggle. Whereas in the past, I only failed. 
Remember, it's a two to five year process of renewing the mind with a miracle every single day. I was in bondage. I couldn't break that cycle of addiction. To struggle also does not mean to relapse. It can, certainly can, but it doesn't mean that. No, rather, for me, it's the hard work of transforming my mind. I'm struggling to transform my mind. I'm working at building relational intimacy with my wife. Pressing into practicing honesty and transparency and sharing my story like I am today. And I don't struggle without tools. I am equipped and empowered with tools and principles that I've learned, again, through Seven Pillars and the Conquer series and other material. And I don't struggle alone. Not at all. Jesus is with me. Colossians 1.29 says, For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that mightily works within me. And I have a brotherhood of conquerors. I tell you, there is nothing more precious than finding people who... Uh, who want to battle with you. It is a gift of God of the men who are also on the Calvary Road, killing sin in their lives, and beginning to taste the freedom that God has for us. Freedom. Hope. You know, I have hope now, and, uh, and I have peace, and I have joy. And, you know, one day... <laughs> I just love this verse from Jude, Jude one twenty four. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you faultless before his glory with great joy. You know, it's not going to be, it's not going to be Jesus standing before the Father and he goes, uh, uh, oh, yeah, here's the, problem guy I was telling you about would you let him in no he is going to present me faultless before the father with great joy and he will do the same for you as Kevin and the worship team come uh, I just want to share with you Thursday morning <laughs> struggling through this week trying to figure out how am I going to tell this this morning how am I going to say this story this morning Thursday morning, I get up for my time with the Lord at 5.30 in the morning and went downstairs and opened, opened the devotional that morning, John Piper. And 1 Peter 5.10, it says this, And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore Confirm, strengthen, and establish you. The God of all grace. Aren't you glad he's not the God of some grace? <laughs> I'm serious. He's the God of all grace. All grace. And he has grace for every bit of sin that you have. And he has been doing res restoration. He's restoring our marriage. 
He's confirming, confirming for Barb and I who we are in Jesus Christ. He is strengthening my feeble hands through the body of Christ. And he is establishing, he is a redemption plan of redeeming grace for both of our lives. And, um, but I like to read the Bible in context. So as I sat down to read that verse, I backed up to the front of the paragraph. And here's the key. Verse 6 says two words. Humble yourselves. That is the very first place. That's where it begins. Humble yourselves. Therefore, under the mighty hand of God, it begins with humility. And I think the question this morning is, where are you at? Where are you at this morning? What are you in bondage to? Mine was sexual sin. Yours could be something totally different. But I believe that God is speaking to hearts here this morning. And uh, maybe this morning, right now is the time to humble yourselves before God.